Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. This week, our show is all about airplanes. Did you know there used to be a load of small airports across central Appalachia? There was a day when airplanes made a world of a difference here. It took 15 minutes to fly what it would take you almost seven hours on a train and nearly as long by car. We'll take a flight with the one and only Chuck Yeager, who broke the sound barrier back in 1947. He says he could stop flying at any point and not miss it. I, I can walk away from airplanes today and it doesn't make any difference to me. I got other things to do like fishing, hunting, and... Why still fly? To get some place to hunt and fish. And we'll hear the story of a flight in 1979 that didn't go quite as planned. It was a four-engine DC-6 cargo plane overloaded with marijuana, and it crashed and burst into flames after it overshot the runway at Kanawha Airport. You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. So many of us are dreaming right now about the things we want to do when this pandemic is over, like travel someplace far away. If you have wanderlust or the itch to fly, these are not ideal circumstances we're in right now. But being grounded does give us time to reflect and dream of flights in our future and those in our past. I grew up on an Appalachian airfield. My parents had a flight school there. So many of my actual literal dreams are set on the tarmac of the Marshall County Airport in West Virginia. I even learned to fly myself. In fact, one of the coolest actual dreams I've ever had was the night before my first solo flight. I practiced taking off and landing all night. I was ready the next day. Of course, by that point, in my waking life, I had watched a generation of Appalachians learn to fly. When I was a kid, it seemed like anyone could learn to fly if they wanted it bad enough. Rich, poor, young, old. Gravity, wind, and aerodynamics didn't discriminate. And of course, if you go further back, flying like a crow was one of the only ways to get quickly around in this state. Southern West Virginia used to be home to like 40 airfields or landing strips for airplanes. Today, there are 28, and some are dormant. Our Southern Coalfields reporter, Caitlin Tan, looked into what happened to all those runways. Amidst the rolling hills and strip mine mountaintops that stretch through Logan County, West Virginia, is Route 10, a newer highway that was 20 years in the making. It made road travel in southern West Virginia more accessible, but it also replaced the McDonald Airfield. And like most airports in the coal fields, the McDonald Airfield is but a faint memory, recalled only by a few who used to fly there. We, we loved our little airport, and so we, we always took good care of it. That's Andrew York, a professional pilot from southern West Virginia. He actually learned to fly at McDonald Airfield in the 90s. It was known by locals as Taplin Airfield for its proximity to the unincorporated town of Taplin. It always looked good in the spring and summer and the fall. It was always nicely mowed and and trimmed, and you know, we'd have cookouts, and, and it was a throwback airport. It was... Nothing new there. York's grandfather, Ed Silvarni, a legendary World War II fighter pilot, helped found Taplin after the war. And at that time, Taplin was a big deal. Even JFK flew in there. The uh, sun does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. And I'm delighted to be here. And actor Lorne Green, who played Mr. Cartwright in Bonanza, also flew into this small Logan County airport. 
In fact, local airfields popped up all across southern West Virginia in the 1900s. At least 12 were opened between the 1930s and the later 1960s. They were used as training facilities, military fields, and as a way to get around West Virginia. Merle Cole says it revolutionized travel in the Mountain State. Cole is the marker program officer for the Raleigh County Historical Society, meaning he researches potential historical sites. And lately, he's focused on two airfields in the region. He says in the 1930s, from Bluefield to Charleston... It took 50 minutes to fly, where it would take you almost seven hours on a train and nearly as long by car. But much like Taplin, many of these airfields have disappeared. They've been replaced by highways, strip malls, even the forests have overtaken a few. There aren't many people left who still know the history of these tiny airports, and very little history was written down. Like so much else tied to the once prosperous coal towns throughout Appalachia, many of these stories have been forgotten with time. But Cole says the airfield history that we do know is partly related to the boom and bust cycle of coal mining. Flying is an expensive business. If you are an airline company, you've got to have a lot of money invested in airplanes, airports and runways and, and staff and crew and things like that. If you're, if, if you're operating a small private or, or personal airstrip, you've still got to have the money to keep that plane in the air. And while the coal industry prospered... People had extra cash. A lot of people got pilot's license, learned to fly. Cole says it also helped that flying was relatively new, only invented a few decades earlier. It became the way to get around West Virginia. In fact, Andrew York's grandfather actually used his fighter pilot experience to work his way up from being a coal miner to flying coal barons throughout the region. You know, if you're a coal president or you're in charge of a coal mines or something, my goodness, you don't want to drive, you know, an hour and a half. You know, two hours, depending on what part of the southern coal field you're coming from. Uh, but you had all these little communities that had their, you know, kind of their own airport. And it, it gave them access out of, you know, out of the coal fields. And although it was more efficient than driving, the topography still made flying difficult. To land a plane, one needs long stretches of flat land, something the mountain state, especially the southern coal fields, lacks. Runways have to be built either on top of flattened mountains or in flat land near the rivers, says Randy Collar. He's a pilot and airport inspector who travels across the country for his job, including West Virginia. Generally, they're, they're shorter runways, and if they're building a valley, it makes it extra difficult because there'll be fog in the valley, meaning it, it takes a while for the fog to lift out of the valley for, for the airport to be used. And the Taplin Airfield, remember that's the little Logan County Airport, was listed as hazardous even while it was still open. It was about 2,600 feet of unpaved grass runway. For comparison, a typical smaller runway is paved in around 6,000 feet. Taplin was also in a valley and shaped in a curve, or what pilots call a dogleg, making it tricky to land, York says. You might be able to see some of the airfield, but not a lot of it because you had a ridge between you and the airfield. So you kind of followed the river, a windy river. So you wasn't really flying straight to the runway. And then all of a sudden you get around that one point at uh, Rich Creek and bam, there's the runway. And then you would land. That's, that's not normal, okay? Any pilot will tell you that's not normal. And a lot of West Virginia's old airfields were like that. 
But with the decline of the coal industry and along with it West Virginia's economy, Merle Cole says these airfields weren't used. When the coal industry started dying off in the 50s, the money went away and people didn't, simply didn't have the money to pay for their hobbies or their uh, transportation in some cases. But the decline wasn't solely related to the coal industry. Randy Collar, the airfield inspector from earlier, says there's several other factors not specific to West Virginia. After World War II, there was kind of an uh, upsurge in pilots because a lot of the veterans had access to the GI Bill and they learned to fly. And that generation of pilots is now dying out. Also, the opening of larger regional airports and more stringent regulations have made it harder for local operations to stay open, Collar says. But some communities hold out, hoping to one day reopen their airfields. One in Wyoming County isn't used much for flying these days, but it's still maintained for other reasons. I myself have walked at the airport or ridden my bike as a young child, and now I enjoy taking my kids up there as well. That's West Virginia native Leanne Biggs. She says the airfield is a long strip of empty pavement, much like a running track, great for recreating. We take long walks up there. My children ride their bikes, splash in the mud puddles, and just enjoy the scenery. Many of the airfields in West Virginia's coal fields have disappeared with time, taking with them much of the rich history. Some have turned into strip mines or chemical factories, others reclaimed by the forests. But there are some clues left behind. In Welch, there's a locked-up gate with an old metal sign that says Welch Airport. And driving along Route 10 in Logan County, there's a turnoff that's called Airport Road. It takes you to what's left of Taplin Airfield, an overgrown field lining the banks of a windy river, offering a glimmer of what it once was. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. So I grew up here in Appalachia, and to be honest, I never really learned much about past entrepreneurial achievements made here. But I've come to find out there's actually a rich history of innovations and heroes. A statue of one of those heroes is in Wheeling, West Virginia, an aviator, West Virginia's own World War I flying ace, Lewis Bennett. I tracked down one of his ancestors, who happens to be a U.S. congressman, David McKinley. People have tried to make aviation part of the future, part of a diversification of our economy in West Virginia, and I love it, but each time, it, it brings me back to Lewis Bennett. McKinley's great-uncle, Lewis Bennett, was born in Weston, West Virginia, in 1894. His mother's family was from Wheeling. McKinley says he was something of a prodigy, building cars as a teen before heading off to university. At Yale in 1916 and 17, he was learning to fly while the First World War was raging on in Europe. Lewis Bennett knew there was going to be this future, and particularly in warfare. He acquired an airplane uh, in New York, And we can only surmise that he went to visit his sister down in in Cape May, New Jersey. After he graduated, he flew the plane down to Cape May. But in trying to take off, uh, he crashed the plane. Putting it back, uh, anyway, he wound up, they put it on a train and they brought it back to Wheeling. But I think he found out how rudimentary uh, uh, that they these airplanes, how they get, they wouldn't be hard to make because he had been flying it enough times. He knew how to fly a plane. 
Bennett came back to Wheeling and started the West Virginia Aircraft Company in Ohio County. Uh, and they were making airplanes uh, for the British and the French during World War I. Then after building in, uh, several of the planes, they then took the idea, well now what we want to do is train a group of aviators uh, to fly in World War I. McKinley explains that Bennett was inspired by the Lafayette Escadrille, a unit of American fighter pilots flying as volunteers under French command during the First World War. So what he tried to do, uh, Lewis Bennett did, was put together this group of West Virginians. And I've got the names of all, I think there were 20 or 23 uh, pilots all from West Virginia that he was training how to fly. Bennett convinced the governor and the legislature at the time to financially support his dream of building the West Virginia Reserve Aerial Unit. Such a lad, tell your sweetheart not to hide, to be proud of boys in line over there. And the governor actually gave them quite a bit of money. And then towards the end of it, they pulled the plug. The U.S. Defense Department was not on board. And so Lewis Bennett, uh, in 19, this is now fall of 1917, after he graduated from Yale, uh, he said, OK, I've, I've done my factory. I've got the factory up and running. I've got 20-some pilots trained. If, if you aren't going to let us fly as a unit, I'm going to su- uh, sign up. So he did. He went to Canada and joined the Royal Flying Corps, was made a lieutenant in the, uh, uh, the RFC, finished his, his flight training, and then was shipped to England. Send the word to we'll be over, we're coming over, and we won't come back till it's over, over there. They assigned him first, uh, maybe a home guard, uh, uh, but it was a pretty safe assignment. And he rebelled about that. We see the letters back to his mother. I, I, I I want to be where the action is. Bennett was reassigned to the front lines of the war. He was sent to northern France near Belgium. He helped train some of the other pilots, teaching them how to lean out and physically drop a bomb out of the side of their aircraft. They also carried pistols. He only flew 10 missions in combat, 10. But he shot down 12 enemy aircraft in that length of time. But he was primarily shooting down balloons. Nine observation balloons, three aircraft. So he was in dogfights in these primitive, wooden, cloth-covered winged airplanes. That was actually more dangerous, and maybe that enticed him because the observation balloons were intended to be pivotal in both sides, saying where the enemy's moving. Uh, So they would be up, and they would be surrounded at the base with artillery. Many, many, the vast majority of planes that were shot down in World War I were shot down dealing with balloons. But two days later, three days later, he went out on another mission. Bennett was flying, and with him on the mission was another pilot named Landis flying a second plane. But Landis had some kind of engine trouble and had to turn back. Bennett did the no-no and stayed. He kept flying. Under all circumstances, he should have come back too, because you don't you don't ever fly by yourself. 
his captain of the squad. Immediately when Landis came back, realized uh, that, that Benedict is flying by himself and very vulnerable. So he took off on a plane to try to catch up with uh, Bennett, but didn't get there in time. Bennett was last seen going after a balloon around Lille, Lille, France, and crashed the plane in, 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 in Wavrin. Strangely enough, not only did the pilot circling the plane to, or circling the balloon to protect it, but the balloon balloonist himself, they all got, they, they, they landed, they brought the balloon down, and then he ran over to Lewis Bennis' plane that had crashed, and they helped extract him out of the plane and took him to the hospital for health care. Overseas there came a pleading, help a nation in the emotional part of it uh, that I just goosebumps now just thinking about it was he had come to Wheeling uh, in December of 17 and he met with his sister, uh, my grandmother, Agra, and she gave him a locket to carry for good luck. And there in the, there in the, um, in the, uh, the hospital, this makeshift hospital, they talked about how uh, he called out to his mother and his father and then in his hand was the locket, and then he died. McKinley himself would one day travel to Germany to visit the family of the balloonist who Bennett died trying to shoot down. That German balloonist actually wrote to Bennett's mother after the war, describing his encounter. I had the opportunity to admire the keenness and bravery of your son. For this reason, I should like to give you the following short description of Lewis's final battle. I had been up several hours observing, and I was at a height of 1,000 meters. Over the enemy's front circled continuously two hostile airplanes. I immediately gave the command to my man below to haul in my balloon. When still about 300 meters high, I saw another German balloon plunge to earth burning. At the same moment, I saw the hostile flyer come toward my balloon at terrific speed. And immediately, defensive fire of my heavy machine rifles below and of the anti-aircraft guns began. But the hostile aviator did not concern himself about that. He opened fire on me. I saw a gleaming fire of missiles flying toward me, but fortunately was not hit. The hostile machine was shot into flames by fire of my machine guns. The enemy aviator tried to spring from the airplane before the latter plunged to the ground and burned completely. I hope that the foregoing lines, a memorial to your son, will be received by you living. He was my bravest enemy. Honor to his memory with respect, Emil Merkelbach. He was buried there uh, with full military honors. Now think about it, you have to understand how that, so the Germans gave him full military honors when they buried him because he had been so valiant. They all knew who he was. And they, and they knew every time when they see his plane up there, this, this, guy, was, <laughs> this guy was good. 
Bennett was buried in Europe, and word slowly got back to his mother, Sally Maxwell Bennett. She was home, by the way, coping with the Spanish flu pandemic. She was crushed by the loss. So she spent a disproportionate amount of time towards the end of the war uh, trying to find him. Was he in Wavern? Was he in Lille? Was he in Belgium? Uh, and, and they finally fi- figured out through the, with working with the Germans where he was. Uh, but then the French stepped up and said, eh, you know, we don't think he should be extracted and sent back to America. There were some funny rules about that during the war. My grandmother is a, just like many of us are pretty persistent. Uh, she waited till nightfall uh, and got some local people from, from Wavrin and they physically dug him up and they identified him by the ring on his hand. In gratitude for the help of the local village, his mother actually had a church built to commemorate her son with a small monument next to it. And for the next six years, she actively sought to memorialize her son across borders and continents, including the commissioning of a statue of an aviator with wings titled Ready to Serve, which stands today in Wheeling. Louis Bennett died in France 103 years ago. The aviation manufacturing industry that he helped launch is still producing airplane parts in West Virginia. In fact, it's the fifth biggest product West Virginia exports. And McKinley says his ancestor's story continues to inspire him to grow that industry here in the Mountain State. Uh, we've advocated it. Uh, I've had numbers of meetings with Bombardier, uh, uh, with Lockheed, Pratt & Whitney. I've been there to talk how we can continue this. I, I, I applaud what uh, Jim Justice is trying to do in, in trying to expand that as part of our diversification of our economy in West Virginia uh, work and our workforce, uh, that we see that the potential with that. So uh, all in all, it, it, it just makes sense, doesn't it, that, that we keep trying to work in aviation? West Virginia exports more than $150 million of airplane parts every year. The work they're doing is innovative. Much of it includes repurposing decommissioned plane parts. These elements were made to last, and we are nothing if not smart and resourceful. And even now, as the global pandemic means less travel, West Virginia's role in the aviation economy may actually stand to be more resilient. Our associate producer, Eric Douglas, reports. Commercial aviation has seen a tremendous downturn because of the pandemic. People just aren't flying. But much of the aviation industry in West Virginia revolves around companies that fly their own airplanes. That sound you hear is the shop floor at Pratt & Whitney's facilities in Bridgeport, West Virginia. Pratt & Whitney is a multinational corporation that manufactures jet engines for civilian and corporate jets like the Gulfstream 500. The West Virginia facility doesn't make jet engines, but repairs them and gets them back in service. And that may be a good thing for West Virginia as the industry goes through post-pandemic recovery. Richard Abalafia studies trends in the aviation industry for the Teal Group. He says West Virginia's work in servicing older aircraft engines may give it an economic edge over the rest of the country. The major centers primarily do new build, and that's going to be a bit more volatile you know, than fleet sustainment. So uh, that might provide a level of insulation for the uh, West Virginia facilities. Could mean that keeping older planes uh, in service a bit longer is also good for the, uh, the folks who do sustainment. 20 businesses in West Virginia provide materials, make airplane parts, or service engines and airframes for the aviation industry. 
Back inside Pratt & Whitney's facility, General Manager Tim Tucker points to two long rows of workstations with overhead cranes that transport heavy jet engines down the line. There's a dull roar, but apart from the occasional clanging, it's quieter than one might expect. Engines will come in, bring them in, disassemble them all the way down to the nuts and bolts. Go through, we'll clean them, inspect them, repair anything that's deviating, and then bring it back and build it all back up together right here. Engine management specialist in Bridgeport fills a unique niche in the aviation industry. They receive mostly Pratt & Whitney engines that have been taken out of service for one reason or another and completely disassemble them. They remove the parts that have a usable service life and sell them back to Pratt & Whitney to return other engines to flight. The company's owner, Tim Critchfield, indicates an engine on a stand. He explains the value left in each one. So they could range anywhere from a part out, a reduced to spares engine could range anywhere from 50,000 to 200,000, depending on the engine. According to the latest jobs report from Workforce West Virginia, there are about 3,600 West Virginians who are employed by the aviation industry. And while that's about a third of the people currently working in the coal mining industry, it is a start towards making the state's economy more diversified, says West Virginia Commerce Secretary Ed Gaunch. It's critical to our future. We've been an energy state. Coal's been important to us, still important, and I think will remain important. But what we're trying to do is, is construct an economy around uh, some of these other industries. Gaunt says the aviation industry pays about $24 million in taxes, and each job in the industry has an average salary of $78,000. Despite those earnings, there aren't enough skilled workers to fill the positions, says Ruben Segura, the deputy general manager at Pratt & Whitney's Bridgeport facility. That's why we're getting the involvement with the high schools and, and universities and colleges, because we're going to have to have that resource available to us if we want to continue to grow. To work in the aviation manufacturing industry in West Virginia, workers typically need to go through an airframe and power plant course at a technical college or university. There are just two of these programs in the state. Next fall, Marshall University will launch a new associate degree program with Mount West Community and Technical College to certify technicians and keep West Virginia's aviation industry flying high. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston, West Virginia. As we were working on this episode, we asked you to tell us your first memory of flying in a plane. Terrell Webb lives in North Carolina now, but he spent many years as a public school teacher in Logan County, West Virginia, and he comes back to the Mountain State every few weeks to fly. Here's his story about how he first caught the flying bug. My first flight was in the summer of 1959. My great uncle was the manager of Tri-City Airport in Johnson City, Tennessee. And he arranged for my family and me to have a flight uh, there with a friend of his who ran Appalachian Flying Service. And after that first flight, I was hooked. I got to sit up front next to the pilot and it was just kind of like magic. All of a sudden, you're rolling down the runway, and then you're off and you're up into the air. We flew over Johnson City and circled around my great-uncle and aunt's house and uh, got to see some of the sights there. And it's, uh, it's just a different view of the world from a couple thousand feet up. 
What about you? What do you remember about the first time you were in a plane? If you've flown, tell us what it was like to fly in Appalachia for the first time. Send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. We'll hear more of your first flight stories a little later in our show, but now it's time to talk about the one and only Chuck Yeager, a personal hero. Now, I wasn't named after his plane, the plane that broke the sound barrier, but I grew up on an airport where a huge painting of Chuck Yeager's Bell X-1 hung. He named that plane the Glamorous Glennis after his first wife. Chuck Yeager is one of Appalachia's, nay, the world's most famous aviators. A West Virginia native, he was the first person to fly faster than the speed of sound in 1947. He was a character then, and believe me, he still is. He's 97 years old and recently posted on Twitter, Chuck Yeagerism. Don't bring me problems, bring me solutions. Back in 2007, Chuck Yeager agreed to fly with Washington Post aviator Del Wilbur in the Sierra Mountains of California. Wilbur recorded this story, which originally aired on NPR. Chuck Yeager hasn't softened with age. I learned this quickly standing on a small airstrip in Northern California. I'm waiting for him, microphone in hand. If you don't take that damn thing and quit sticking it in my face, I'm going to throw you off the field. The 84-year-old is standing in front of me wearing jeans, pulled all the way up to his belly button, and an Air Force baseball cap. I'm eager to ask him about being a World War II fighter ace and about flying rocket planes and about breaking the sound barrier, but he's not interested. Do you like flying as much as you used to? No. I never did like flying. How's that grab you? We're concentrating on flying, so let's quit asking questions. Okay. We head into a nearby hangar to borrow his buddy's plane, and I watch Jaeger pull a dipstick out of the single-engine Husky to check the oil. Run very good without it. <laughs> this is the guy from the right stuff, but he's not the least bit sentimental. He's flown some of the fastest and most famous planes ever made. We wheel the plane out. He slips easily into the cockpit. I bash my head on the wing. <laughs> And we're off on our tour of the rugged mountains of the Sierras. Boy, you can sure see a long ways. We're puttering along at 100 miles an hour. I know he's flown a lot faster than that. I flew the SR-71 a lot. Uh, 3.26 Mach or 2,300 miles an hour. He says it so casually. 2,300 miles per hour is faster than most bullets. That is New York to Los Angeles in less than an hour. Boy, it sure is smooth, isn't it? Beautiful. We dip down into a valley. Jaeger sits in front of me in the two-seat cockpit. The last person who flew with Jaeger paid more than $90,000 to charity auction for the honor. He's agreed to fly with me for the cost of fuel. He never explains why. As a pilot, I would love to take the stick, but I know I shouldn't ask, and I don't. I ask him about his career in breaking the sound barrier. His responses are brief. Breaking the sound barrier opened up space for us and uh, put us ahead of the rest of the world in aeronautical knowledge. See that mountain over there? Yep. The airport's just to the left of it. Okay. We head into land. Sabata County, Yellow Husky, Quebec, Romeo, Leering, Delwind, Railroad 25, full stop. We touch down with barely a bump. I don't know, it seemed like a pretty good landing. If you're going to walk away from a landing, it's a good landing. If you use the airplane the next day, it's an outstanding landing. We walk over to a small bench and chat. He watches the planes flying overhead. I try to get him to talk about flying. He ends up talking about religion and how he doesn't need God in the airplane. It was really difficult for, you know, fanatic churchgoers to understand God can't help me. It's I'm the only one that can help me. You want to give up and go 
make a smoking hole or you want to save yourself? Make a smoking hole, you pray all the way down, you know? <laughs> he says he didn't accept the X-1 sound barrier flights for the glory. So why did he do it? Duty. See, I have to use that word because you don't understand what the hell duty is. And when I was picked to fly the X-1, it was my duty to fly, and I did, so. When do you think you'll have to uh, hang up your wings and stop flying? I, I, see, you keep asking speculation questions, and I don't speculate. But you won't miss it, you say? No. I, I can walk away from airplanes today, and it doesn't make any difference to me. I, I got other things to do, like fishing, hunting, and... Why still fly? To get some place to hunt and fish. The general thumps on the table. I just stare at him for a few moments and ponder what he said. Chuck Yeager can give up airplanes just like that? I'm not sure I believe him. Later, I follow him into the parking lot. As he drives off, I read the license plate in the back of his family SUV. It says Bell X-1A. The Bell X-1 is the plane that broke the sound barrier. For NPR News, I'm Del Wilbur. Chuck Yeager's Bell X-1 broke the sound barrier, but it's worth noting that a less astute pilot might have died trying. So it wasn't the last iteration of the plane. Today, NASA and other organizations are working on the X-59. And one of the companies working on it is right here in West by God. And that plane, too, might just make history. So the amazing thing that Chuck Yeager did, he he breaks the sound barrier, and he does it in an airplane that wasn't well designed to do that and nearly was killed. And he was just brilliant in what he did. That's Brian Joseph, an entrepreneur, scientist, engineer who lives in Wheeling. And they broke the sound barrier, realized what they had to change, and then that led to a series of X-planes. There were a bunch of X-1s, X-1A, X-1B, C, D, E. And then since then, we've had many, many X-planes that do all kinds of things, nuclear propulsion to ramjet engines. And we're up to now X-59. X-59 will be the world's first supersonic airplane that does not leave a sonic boom. You know, we live in a world here that we're limited in speed because it's illegal in in the U.S. and most countries to fly beyond the speed of sound because it makes this enormous sonic boom, breaks windows, it's really awful. So that's been sort of our upper speed limit. But now with an airplane uh, called the X-59, also called the Quest, um, if this is successful, this will be able, we will be able to fly airplanes at double the speed, get to places in half the time that we have been. Joseph has dedicated his professional life to reimagining and retooling old materials with new technologies. He founded and is president of Touchstone Research Laboratory, which is a lab that's also put Wheeling on the aerospace technology map. His role with the X-59 is to create the molds used to cast the carbon fiber parts for the plane. And fun fact, one of the key ingredients of the molds is Appalachian coal. All right, so since we're talking about groundbreaking or sound barrier breaking aviation in this episode, there's a historic plane ride we just can't not include And it was groundbreaking, actually, literally groundbreaking. And it's become the stuff of local legend. Storyteller Bill Lepp told a version of this story back in 2008 at the Public Library in St. Albans, West Virginia. All right, I got time for one more here. Uh, This is my brother Paul's story. It's the first story he ever told in the Liars Contest, in the West Virginia Liars Contest, which is what started us and me into the storytelling world. So I've always appreciated this story. 
Paul Bunyan had his axe. King Arthur had Excalibur. I, poor humble West Virginian, have the monster stick. Now, the monster stick is my nine-foot surf-casting rod, complete with six miles of brand-new 50-pound test-strand carp cord. It's the castingest outfit I ever did own. You have to understand, the monster stick has a patented five-minute cast. You can usually cast, open your favorite beverage, and be about halfway through the can before the bait ever hits the water. You have to be real careful, even on a big river, if there's a wind behind you that you don't cast all the way over and hang up in the weeds on the other side. So this one night, I was down at the Marmot Locks. I was doing a little bit of catfish fishing, and the night was really a fisherman's dream. There were fishermen lined up and down both sides of that river, and all those fishermen had their Coleman lanterns with them, and all those lanterns were lit, and most of those fishermen had their Coleman coolers with them, so most of those fishermen were lit. But it was going a little slow, so I thought I'd put a fresh hunk of rotten liver on my hook, and I reeled in, I was putting the liver on, and while I was doing that, I heard a droning noise coming down the river. Now, it wasn't really bothering me, so I didn't pay any attention to it. I went into that patented five-minute cast, and just as I let loose with that cast, I saw what was making that noise. A DC-3 airplane was coming in so low over the river that it was pushing awake. And right away, I realized what had happened. That pilot had seen all those lanterns (laughs) going up and down both sides of that river. He was coming in for a landing. Well... He was headed straight for the Marmot Locks, and just in the nick of time, he realized his mistake and pulled out. Now, I say it was the nick of time, and it was for him, but it was too late for me, because it wasn't before the end of my line had wrapped a triple-improved clench knot around the tail of his plane. Now, I don't know if you've ever been hooked to the tail of a DC-3 before, but I can tell you that things start happening fast. The next thing I knew, I was jerked up out of my shoes. I was staring at the pigeons on top of the interstate bridge. I started to reel as quick as I could. I got up over the top of that bridge, but then I did a dumb thing. I looked down. Now, I'm scared of heights, so I quit reeling, and I let the drag on that line take me all the way back down to the river. And just as my feet touched the water, I looked up. I saw the south side bridge looming large. Well, I started reeling like Bill Dance on a Casting for Dollars program. I got up over the top of that bridge. About that same time, that pilot got his bearings back. He made a right turn there at the old Sears Tower in Charleston, and that flung me out over the Elk River. Now, for those of you that aren't from Charleston, you might not know this, but there are no less than five bridges in the first quarter mile of the Elk River. I got up over the Boulevard Bridge, tipped the top of the Lee Street Bridge. That somersaulted me over the Summer Street Bridge, but there was no way I was getting over the Washington Street Bridge. And it was about that time that the fishermen caught back up with me, and I knew what I had to do. I straightened out my legs in front of me, and when I hit the top beam of that bridge, I just wrapped my legs around that beam, held as tight as I could onto the monster stick with both hands, hauled back, and set the hook. (laughs) Well, that pilot felt the bite of that number three eagle claw, and he just shot straight up into the sky and then dove into the heart of the city. He was going in and out of buildings trying to hang me up. I had to play out drag as fast as I could. 
fishing reel sounded like a cat caught in a fan belt. I was laying line all over the city. He almost hung me up on the KB&T building, but I got him turned just in time. And then he was coming straight at me. I had to start reeling. As I had six miles of line all over the streets of Charleston. I was reeling as fast as I could. I was sweating so hard that cars going over the bridges turned on their windshield wipers. They thought it was raining. But I got him turned and headed toward the airport, and he disappeared behind the trees, and that's when the line broke. And I fell off that bridge and splashed into the river, and I was sloshing my way out of the water. I was feeling pretty bad for myself, but I did console myself with the idea that I've been a fisherman for a long time, and I've lost big ones before. <laughs> and besides, even if I had landed that thing, I didn't have any place to mount it, so... Wasn't really that big of a deal, but as it turns out, that's not the end of the story, because you see, I had a buddy who was working up there at Eagle Aviation that night. He said I was bringing that plane in for a perfect three-point landing, and just which made me feel pretty good, because I had never landed a plane before. <laughs> but just as he touched down, that pilot wiggled his tail fin, and that caught my line up on the propeller of one of those National Guard C-130s. That's when the line broke, and I fell back into the water. But it turns out that's not the end of the story either. And the trial's over, so uh, <laughs> allowed to talk about it. Now, it turns out that when that line broke, that plane had a whole bunch of extra momentum, and it shot right off the edge of the runway and crashed into Coonskin Park. Well, it turns out that plane was carrying about six tons of that marijuana stuff they were smuggling in from South America. And I don't mind telling you people this story, but I would appreciate it if you wouldn't tell my mother. Because I don't mind her knowing that I'm hooked on fishing, but I would hate for her to find out that I spent a summer's night hooked on marijuana. <laughs> Thank you very much. Bill Lepp is an award-winning storyteller and five-time winner of the West Virginia Liars Contest. As he mentioned, his brother Paul actually wrote that tall tale, and most every tall tale has elements of truth. That one is based on an actual plane crash back in 1979. Here's some sound from WSAZ's news coverage. It was a four-engine DC-6 cargo plane overloaded with marijuana, and it crashed and burst into flames after it overshot the runway at Kanawha Airport. It became known as the pot plane crash. To learn the full story, we caught up with West Virginia historian and the editor of Golden Seal magazine, Stan Bumgardner. A little after midnight on June 6, 1979, there was an old uh, Douglas DC-6 cargo plane that um, asked for permission to land at Canal Airport, which is now Yeager Airport in Charleston. They crashed the plane, is the short story. The reason they crashed it, in part, was because they were drug smugglers from South America who had never flown into the airport in Charleston, West Virginia. The drug smugglers were carrying approximately 20,000 pounds of marijuana. But the key was because it was such a big plane and carrying such a heavy load, they had to get this plane down fast. So they try last minute landing and they just panic. And it shoots the, the plane over the hillside and it bursts into flames. The crew on board the plane survived and everyone was caught. I think one guy lost an eye. But it left the authorities with a huge problem on their hands. Authorities estimate several tons of the pot were still on the mountainside today. Still an attraction for some. Have you had any problem with kids looking for some free pot? Well, we've had some problem here on security, on uh, keeping uh, uh, people out of the area here. Of course, some of them are here to 
watch the activities here and us trying to uh, dispose of the, uh, the marijuana. And of course, there's some other people here probably that would like to get up there and get a sample or two. So we're having to keep all people out of the area. With 20,000 pounds of marijuana, it was too much for an evidence room. You know, what do you do with it? So the feds came in and decided to set fire to it, that they would burn it. The newspaper went and interviewed this woman, Anna Marie Smith, and she just she, she talked about it. it was an awful smell and it was just burning all the time. And um, then they asked her about how things had been on the street. And she, she just said, well, all of a sudden, everybody's uh, really calm and they were laughing and talking. And she said they, they started calling her road Happy Holler. Bumgardner says he's also heard rumors that seeds from the pot grew a patch of marijuana up the hillside beside the airport. Authorities tried to kill the plants with diesel, but some locals say the plants didn't die off. And for a while, some residents foraged the wild weed growing there. And here's another piece of backstory about the crash. One of the people involved was filmmaker Leon Gast, who was waiting at the airport in a moving rental truck to collect the goods. Apparently, he was smuggling the pot to help finance a film about the rumble in the jungle fight between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman in Zaire in 1974. Gast was convicted on drug smuggling charges. But once he got out of prison, he did actually make the movie called When We Were Kings, and it won an Academy Award. In a time of courage in the jungles of Zaire, a man named Mohammed created his own destiny. Up next, residents in White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, had long speculated about why a 7,000-foot landing strip existed in their small town. Turns out it was connected to an underground bomb shelter kept secret by the U.S. government for 30 years. That story and more in just a minute. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Glynis Board. And we'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. As we're currently in the midst of a global pandemic, maybe you're wondering if you could just go underground for a month or a year. Hey, I get that. And it's a perfect segue into our next story about a secret bunker hidden for three decades in the Greenbrier Resort in West Virginia. It was the 1950s, and fears of a nuclear apocalypse made the president search out a remote location where all 535 members of Congress could hide in case of a nuclear attack. They selected a remote springs resort that was a mere hop, skip, and jump from D.C. Paul Freeman has written about the Greenbrier Bunker on a website he runs called Abandoned and Little-Known Airfields. We caught him up to learn more of the story. The Greenbrier Resort is is a is a neat one um, because of its really unusual history. Where there was a, a Cold War nuclear bunker built underneath the Greenbrier for for the Senate and the House of Representatives, and everybody in the town kept it a secret. Everybody who worked on it, all the construction workers, they all kept it a secret, and it was it it was really unknown for for years until I think the the government eventually closed it. 
And so the Greenbrier Resort had their own airport as well. And it had an unusually long and elaborate runway. And it turned out that, you know, nobody really knew why did the resort have such an elaborate runway until, what do you know, this news came out basically after the Cold War was over that that there was a a, a nuclear bunker underneath the, the hotel and that evidently the airport was probably, you know, partially expanded to 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 assist in, in that kind of role. Um, and eventually the, the resort closed the, uh, well, I mean, not only was the, the bunker closed, but then they closed the, the, uh, the, the runway itself, which kind of gave the theory that the runway really was related to the bunker. The secret of the Greenbrier bunker was eventually exposed in 1992. The government has supposedly built a new secret bunker. Who knows? Maybe this one also exists right here in Appalachia. We mentioned earlier that we heard from several listeners sharing your favorite memories of flying. One of these stories is from Merle Cole from Raleigh County, West Virginia. My favorite West Virginia flight took place when I was in, you call it junior high school. Uh, Now, um, when my cousin and I went out to the Raleigh County Memorial Airport and hired one of those pilots to take us on an aerial flight of Beckley, Shady Spring area, etc., uh, and we took my parents' movie camera, and we took uh, aerial footage of the area. It doesn't sound very exciting. What was exciting about it was that we didn't tell our parents we were doing this. Uh, and they were a little bit upset when we, when we showed them the film. <laughs> I would ask my mother, if, if, we had asked, if we had asked to be allowed to do this, would you have let us? And because the answer was no. She wouldn't have. <laughs> I still have the footage, as terrible as it is. But just the, the idea of us doing that and doing it secretly um, is, is a lot of fun. To close our show, let's hear one more of your favorite memories of flying. The Mallory Airport and Flight School in South Charleston has a 2,000-foot asphalt landing strip. Benny Mallory built and opened it in 1973 on a mountain called Mudsuck, where he grew up. Mallory has been flying for 70 years, and he's something of a legend. He was buddies with Edsel Varney, the World War II fighter pilot we heard about earlier, and Chuck Yeager, the West Virginia pilot who first broke the sound barrier. Mallory even flew some local and national celebrities around. Honey, I could tell you stories that take all day. <laughs> I flew commercially for probably every politician in town, I think. I flew with John F. Kennedy before he was president. I took him to Bluefield and dropped him off. About all it was, a very nice guy. I enjoyed him. Oh, yeah, I've been around a while. I'm uh, 89, halfway to 90. I'm about the most country guy you've ever seen. I was a helicopter examiner. I do helicopter work, too. And seaplane examiner, glider examiner. And uh, I probably give 40,000 license. You know, I've had a wonderful, I've had a wonderful life, honey. My wife and I have been together 
we're going to have her 71 anniversary. She was flying anywhere with me. She, she wasn't a great aviator, but she was a great supporter of me. When our kids was born, she'd set them on her lap and go with me. I had a son that really liked to fly, too, and he got Parkinson's and died. But he was 60, and he was a good pilot, was a maintenance inspector, too. And he just done good in aviation all of his life, you know, and loved it, you know. Aviation is a part of West Virginia, and you can get places in a hurry. West Virginia's been really good at flying, and and they got a lot of good people, good airports. This is my home. It's going to always be my home. I've been all over the world, and I've seen everything, and I ain't seen nothing as good as this old mud up here. And... Um, I'm going to be on this mountain until they put me underground. That was Benny Mallory, who built, owned, and operated the Mallory Airport in South Charleston. Thanks very much to our Southern Coalfields reporter, Caitlin Tan, for recording memories of flying for our show this week. I mentioned earlier I grew up on a small public airport in Marshall County, West Virginia. Only kid I knew with a runway in the backyard and a constant giant spinning beacon for a nightlight. Green. White. Green. White. The ends of the runway drop off dramatically, which is pretty typical in Appalachia. There was a landslide years ago, so one end was just a pretty sharp cliff drop off. Of course, I used to play there. The view was great. I remember one day standing with my toes over the edge, and I knew with all of my little girl heart that if I just believed hard enough, I could step off the edge and fly, soar, just like a hawk, if I just believed strongly enough. I almost took that step, but at the last minute, I thought it might be a sin to test God. I should think this over. And so I didn't plunge to my death that day. Fast forward more than a decade, I was at the end of the runway in a plane all by myself. It was my first solo flight, a momentous occasion. I was going through the pilot's checklist, flaps, carburetor mix, doors, and as I gazed down the runway toward that same view, I could suddenly see in my mind's eye the back of the little girl version of myself perched on the edge of the cliff. I remembered how convinced I was that believing hard enough would make my dream of flying off the cliff real. And that's when I realized what was about to happen. I was about to fly off that cliff. I mean, sure, I was enabled with the power of a noisy mechanical bird that I was wrapped in, but still. I pushed the throttle forward, gathered speed, and I flew right over the head of my past self, off the edge of the cliff, and soared just like a hawk over the hills of Marshall County. In that moment, I learned that, yeah, I could take off and land a plane, but perhaps more importantly, that belief really is that powerful and that we're really only limited by the scope of our imagination and maybe our capacity for some patience. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. 
Other music this week was provided by Louis Bonfa, Anne and Elizabeth, Josh Woodward, and Marisa Anderson. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. We also had some special help from Johannes Faust, who contributed to one of our stories. Thanks very much, Johannes. You can find us at Twitter, at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to insideappalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all our stories. Or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. <laughs>